Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page. All right, welcome to this award-winning episode of Conversations with the Mind podcast. You are in the right place at the right time, listening to the right content. You guys can probably hear from my voice. I'm just overcoming some bronchitis. Yeah, that was nice. Uh, and uh, trying to work as a as a therapist where I get uh, paid to talk to people is quite difficult when uh, you have this itch in the back of your throat, making you want to cough all the time. So I apologize ahead of time uh, for a couple things with this episode. So this is a this is a huge episode for us. Um, this is episode number 100. And when I first started this thing a couple years ago, I never thought that um, that I would reach 100, I guess, uh, as quickly as I have. Uh, these podcasts are exceptionally difficult for someone like myself, trying to put it all together by myself. Um, each episode, I mean, each episode uh, conversation is two hours, but behind the scenes, the stuff that you don't get to necessarily um, take part in as much, the, the editing process, uh, the rendering process, all these, all these different processes that I have to go through to not only create the product, but to also uh, upload the product onto various platforms that you all are enjoying it on. So each episode, I think, takes about eight hours in total of uh, work in order to produce and publish. So, I mean, if you think about 100 episodes, I mean, that's close to, uh, well, my first few episodes were not two-hour-long interviews, and they were all taken in one take. Um, so these later episodes, after 40, I think, are the ones where I've really been putting more of that technical effort into it, even though I'm definitely not a technical expert. So 100 is huge for me. Um, I think I started this in July of uh, 2019, possibly, mm-hmm. um, maybe 2018, not not sure. Um, 
But anyway, it's been quite a journey, and I just want to say thank you to all the listeners out there who continue to listen and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and continue to share uh, this podcast with friends and family and others who might be interested in these kinds of discussions, uh, whether it be on psychedelics or consciousness in general or performance enhancement or uh, you know, just the mental experiences that we all go through day to day. You know, this is a podcast of stories, storytelling and uh, sharing experience and sharing knowledge and wisdom. So you're in the right place. And thank you for joining us on our 100th episode. So again, I apologize for the sound of my raspy voice, although it may um, it may actually be a benefit for me. So <laughs> maybe that's a good thing. Anyway. This episode um, was done through Zoom, uh, as we do uh, quite a bit of those during uh, the COVID pandemics and shutdowns and things like that. And we wanted to bring on an old guest today, which I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but huge episode for us um, because it was done through Zoom um, and the Internet in our neighborhood was just like on fire when we were recording this. Uh, not literally on fire, but... Um, Lots and lots of people using it at the same time. So very slow internet, which caused uh, the audio and the video, I believe, to cut out here and there, uh, making it quite an interesting listen to, you know, to get 90, 95% of the content uh, only to have, you know, there be a one to two second pause in the middle of a sentence um, and then trying to have to put that together uh, as a, you know, a puzzle in your mind. So... Um, I apologize for that. That was out of my control. Again, uh, we are trying to upgrade our systems here and get on some of that, some of that new internet going around on fiber optics um, would be awesome. But anyway, uh, expect that. But I still, uh, you know, hope that you really enjoy this this episode. It was great to chat with my good friend again, and uh, yeah, we'll get into it. But first, uh, as always, let's listen to some Arturo Complex. Get the vibe set and uh, let's get going.
Okay, today's good news story is actually a personal story from my life. Um, and it's I'm thoroughly excited about this. So uh, I am the vice president, current vice president in 2021 of the Denver Psilocybin Mushroom Policy Review Panel. And uh, part of our uh, job as a panel reporting to, you know, the the government of Denver, um, mayor's office, uh, you know, uh, sorry, I'm clicking out of here, but we, we are tasked at putting together this comprehensive report of, um, you know, pretty much everything that happened after decriminalization of mushrooms in Denver. And, uh, the city wanted to know on a variety of different levels, you know, what were the impacts? Were there more hospitalizations, more arrests? Um, what were the positive implications of it? What are the negative implications as well as, you know, what are next steps based off of the data that we've collected over the last couple of years? What are the next best steps as far as uh, decriminalization uh, goes for some of these substances? And so we are re- releasing our comprehensive report, which we've worked really hard on. We're releasing it very soon, probably in the next um, month or so uh, in 2021. So you all will hear this uh, come out in September, uh, and it will, you know, it'll be released probably in October, November, or something like that. So keep your eyes open for that. It should make um, national news. Um, it already has been, as far as uh, you know, different newspapers across the country kind of reporting uh, in anticipation of this comprehensive report that we're putting out. So the report covers lots of interesting things uh, that you may be interested in. If you're just interested in finding out, you know, what is this psilocybin policy review panel all about in Denver? We have an entire um, executive summary in the beginning of this report that sort of outlines what our task is uh, and how we came to be formed after uh, the legislation passed. All right, I had to take a drink. So we go over everything from historical use and early research uh, with psilocybin, modern psilocybin research, and therapeutic applications. Um, sort of what we learned as a panel uh, in 2020, uh, not only in regards to COVID, but uh, what we learned from all of our resources throughout the community. We, you know, we we had a lot of conversations, many, many hours of conversations with some uh, top level public service um, folks, as well as, you know, chief of police and um, all sorts of people, you know, the DA, all, all sorts of people about, uh, you know, compiling all their statistics to try and figure out, you know, what can we learn from this? So our conclusions of what we learned are in that report. Go check it out. Um, it's, it's, pretty extensive and uh you know a lot of a lot of things that we did not expect to happen happened and um some things that we did expect to happen happened so uh, i'm not going to get into uh, any spoiler alerts you got to go check it out uh we also talk about our multi-responder training that we are putting together in collaboration with maps the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies and uh you know we're putting together a comprehensive training for Denver uh, as sort of a pilot run, um, hoping that this program will be uh, beneficial enough to be able to expand to other municipalities across the country. Uh, The multi-responder training is a training for first responders, uh, EMTs, uh, police, um, you know, sheriffs and and guards in in prisons and uh, jails, you know, um, 
any sort of first responder, you know, the mental health co-responder units that go with police. All these folks uh, we're hoping to train up and give them some further education and some practical tools to be able to uh, more effectively respond to individuals in the community who may be on psychedelics. Because um, there's certainly a way, as we've uh, learned through experience, there's certainly a way to um, therapeutically, uh, or, at, or at the least, um, successfully doing no harm. There are, there are plenty of ways to interact with people in altered states of consciousness that uh, promote more positive outcomes, as opposed to some of the, the uh, prior approaches, which are kind of uh, too broad, or, or you know, for those kinds of um, uh, mental states. So we're putting together that training, uh, hoping to pilot it soon. More of the details are also in this report. Um, we talk a lot about uh, possible psychedelic reform, um, and uh, we base our, um, you know, our arguments and our, our recommendations for Denver off of other. Um, reform going on in in other U.S. municipalities across the country. So we talk a lot about the decriminalization and legalization efforts in other uh, states, as well as how that is informing our own recommendations to Denver City Council to see if, uh, yeah, if we can move forward and um, start making um, some more headway in the areas of drug policy reform. So cool stuff. That is a great news story. Um, trust me, you know, it's, it's an amazing piece of uh, work that we put together and it took us a, you know, a couple years. So please go check it out. Um, we also have a, a, you know, a website. You can go leave comments on the website for the Denver, um, policy review panel. Um, and I think that's it. Okay, so what has been on my mind lately, uh, so I'll give you a piece of my mind. I have been sort of in the middle, uh, well, just beginning, but uh, in the mi- beginning of, in the middle of the beginning section of my uh, comprehensive exams here, working towards my PhD, and I am tasked at writing um, pretty much, you know, a, a good literature review as well as uh, writing out uh, theory and um you know, a, a viable um, research experiment from start to finish, writing it out as if I was presenting it to uh, a committee or a grant uh, proposal or something like that. And so uh, a large part of it is has to do with the, the mystical states of consciousness um, that I think we all have the potential to achieve from time to time, whether it be drug-induced, uh, exercise-induced, or just spontaneous, or through meditation, or whatever means you can access it, by all means. Um, but we all have that potential, um, and that has been one of the main reasons, one of the main inspirations for this podcast in general, is just uh, having had these mystical-type experiences without having any sort of um, structure, or framework, or language to go along with it, and just sitting with that for years, like, what the hell was that? Um, but realizing that it was also very real for me, um, in the way that I perceived it, as well as in the way that I interpreted it and how I integrated it into, into my life. Um, you know, others might've done differently with the information I received from my own experiences, but mine has led me to, um, have a, a never ending search towards some of these answers about, uh, my own consciousness, and I have to uh, try and assume um, other people's consciousness as well. Um, 
still trying to explore whether we're all sharing uh, splinters of the same consciousness or whether we truly do have, um, you know, independence. Uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question in and of itself. But anyway, what's been on my mind recently, I've been reading this book um, about a gentleman named Sri Ramak- Ramakrishna, um, who sort of upended the, the philosophy world uh, when he started talking about conceptualizing mystical experience uh, based off of an entirely new way of doing it. Um, so his was an experiential methodology, and I'll, I'll explain that here in a second. But prior to him, uh, you know, we're reading about two primary forms of um, conceptualization around mystical type experiences. And, um, you know, that being the perennial version and... Um, the constructivist uh, version. So mystical experiences um, happen in all cultures, in all religions, uh, in every single country uh, across human history um, that we can find, you know, we can find records of of some kind of mystical type experience. However, there has been debate on, um, you know, whether mystical experiences uh, all the same in every tradition uh, and everyone's seeing the same thing or whether people are seeing different things um, and, or whether they're seeing different things that are just different perceptions of uh, some objective reality. So there's all these questions about why does everyone seem to have mystical experiences in their cultures and um, based off their subjective you know, reports of these mystical experiences – um, are there any similarities or are they purely different or, you know, what's going on here? So the perennialist views uh, I'm reading, and these are, this is just a super summarized version. I'm not even going to get into some of the main, main figures in these movements. But um, in the perennialist uh, mindset, all mystical experiences are the same across the board, uh, regardless of who you are, where you come from, things like that, and that there are only, uh, you know, a, a small few mystical experiences that people can actually have, and that those are the only mystical experiences. Everything else is uh, but a hallucination, pretty much. Um, so this is the perennialist view, and uh, it's, it's in my mind, it's pretty narrow-minded. Uh, I can see why they would have maybe started there. Um, but you know, a newer, a newer form of interpretation came along, um, and really, you know, really added some additional layers. So the constructivist, um, the constructivist form really takes into account, you know, a person's belief systems, a person's religious practice, a person's uh, worldview, and their own social conditioning that they had. And takes all these uh, pre-mystical experience factors and say that, um, you know, very skillfully say that they believe that some, uh, if not all, of a mystical experience is, um, you know, it is perceived and it is brought about in the individual based off of uh, their prior belief systems, their prior uh, mental structures. So this would mean that you know, someone is uh, going into an experience, doesn't matter how you achieve it, and they are uh, have a prior um, Christian faith, go to church, read the Bible, things like that, then they are more likely to have a mystical experience with symbolism that is in line with their belief system. So they may see more images of Jesus, of the cross, 
of, uh, you know, the Holy Trinity and things like that. So, um, you know, whereas like a, uh, a, I was reading that, a, you know, a Zen, a Zen monk may encounter, um, you know, mystical experience as just the cessation of all thoughts. So having no thoughts, right? And that's the, the primary focus of what Zen meditation is meaning to achieve is just no thought consciousness and seeing this as uh, one of the purest forms of consciousness, just pure awareness. Um, you know, if you're, if you're Hindu, uh, you might experience, um, you know, images of Kali or of uh, other uh, Hindu deities um, that may have influenced your, you know, your worldview, your mental space before you had the mystical experience. So they say that, yes, these can occur. Um, they are partial, at least partially, um, partially sort of created in the minds of the uh, people who experience them. Uh, and part of that creation is from um, prior mental constructs. That makes total sense to me. Okay. And that makes sense as the next iteration sort of in, in how to think about these mystical experiences. So then this third guy, Sri Ramakrishna, who this book is, is entirely about him and his philosophies and sort of how he, how he uh, might be uh, another way for sure, but maybe a newer way to think about uh, mystical experience. Um, so I haven't really gotten into the depths of uh, what his um, philosophy is. You're going to just have to stick around and keep, uh, keep listening to the show in order to get updates on that. I'm in the middle of the book. Um, but so far, what I have understood about his methods that are different than the methods from these previous two um, schools of thought, the perennialists and the um, constructivists, is that those two fields of inquiry were primarily based in philosophical inquiry. They were, um, they were reading um, you know, transcripts and, and hearing stories from people, other people, who had had mystical experiences. So they were pretty much dealing with secondhand data there, right? So it's reports from other people who had had mystical experiences. And then these philosophers were just trying to pick apart based off of, uh, based off, based off of this kind of data collection. So uh, very limited in what you can do with that. Um, so on the other hand, uh, Sri Ramakrishna um, he developed his thoughts on the mystical experience after having had a mystical experience. So his is more experiential in that, um, yeah, he probably studied, uh, well, I know he studied a variety of religious and spiritual traditions, um, which probably had some, um, some significance and helped inform some of his actual experiences. But the fact is that he had multiple mystical experiences that, that he wrote about, uh, whereas some of these earlier philosophers did not have their own mystical experience. They were kind of working from the outside in as opposed to the inside out. And uh, I just love parts of this book where it talks about the importance um, that it really takes, you know, to, to truly understand a concept um, or a, a mind state or, um, you know, a mental illness or something. You have to have had experience going through it. You know, it's a big part of our uh, psychedelic therapy trainings that we put on is providing an experiential component for those who are being trained in this modality so that they 
too, have been in an altered state of consciousness through a psychedelic and have a better uh, grasp on some of the things that their clients are going to tell them. Because some of the things we see in these other, um, you know, spaces, even mystical experience spaces, I mean, they, there are no words, there are no symbols in the human language uh, or in our, in our catalog of experience to be able to explain some of the uh, cosmic um, information coming through. You know, it's just impossible. So having that experience of a mystical state, um, this gentleman, Sri Ramakrishna, um, put together his uh, views on mystical experience. And um, so far, you know, part a big part of it is the experiential part. Another part is that uh, he believes that, um, yeah, that mystical experiences happen in all traditions, that they are, uh, that it is a possibility for um, any human being um, who's willing to devote themselves to um, a practice that will bring about a mystical experience, and that they are partially um, that they are partially constructed by our previous belief systems. He had mystical experiences um, amidst among various traditions. So he started with Hinduism, had uh, Hinduistic mystical experiences. Then he's like, that blew my mind. I want to go see if what these other traditions are talking about when they're talking about these uh, peak states of consciousness. So he went and practiced uh, Judaism for a little bit and experienced uh, Judaic um, mystical uh, experience. And then uh, also with uh, Christianity, you know, he went and studied uh, the the words Jesus Christ and had another uh, mystical experience, all of different quality experiences. but uh, undeniable that they were mystical in nature. And so uh, I'm excited to get into this book. And that's just what's been on my mind recently, are, uh, you know, just how to conceptualize mystical experience and sort of where the, uh, where the history's been, um, how people have thought about it in the past. Uh, it makes big difference to figure that out before trying to uh, think forward to the future. All right. So very special guest today, a return guest Mr. Kevin Matthews. Now, Kevin has been on the show before. He is the president of the Denver Psilocybin uh, Policy Review Panel. And uh, it is always a pleasure to have Kevin back on the show. Um, He spearheaded the campaign that decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms on May 7, 2019 in the city and county of Denver. He currently serves as the president, like I said, and uh, of our panel, as well as, uh, you know, he's the founder of a new organization called Vote Nature. And you all should go check out votenature.org as soon as you get a chance. It's a super cool uh, online platform where we as individuals can start to have uh, a greater influence and impact on our uh, legislative bodies and the people that we elect. Um, it's It's a brilliant thing that Kevin put together. Um, that involves storytelling, you know, people, everyday people like you and I get on their platform and leave, uh, you know, text messages, um, handwritten messages, or video blog style uh, messages about their experiences with with a variety of different uh, legislative issues. Um, And then Vote Nature connects those stories, those videos to your legislator. How cool is that? So that, uh, you know, that, and they provide this platform that is super engaging. So the legislator, you know, has more of an incentive to, to uh, pay attention to, you know, what's on vote nature as opposed to, you know, constantly just being drowned in legalese and 
all that uh, ridiculous kind of paperwork they got to look through every day. So uh, Kevin uh, believes that access to psychedelics is a human rights issue and that no person should be criminalized for the possession, use, or cultivation. Uh, he approaches his professional advocacy through grassroots lens and uh, works to bridge the needs and desires of the psychedelic community to the nation's elected officials and policymakers in order to promote and ensure people-first psychedelic reform. Kevin himself is also an, a U.S. Army veteran, combines the skills he obtained while studying at the United States Military Academy with his three-plus years experience as an advocate to advise, <coughs> excuse me, uh, my my uh, nose get, got a little stuffed up there. Pardon me. Uh, so he's an advocate advising campaigns and uh, networks internationally. He lives in Arvada, Colorado. Um, and, you know, he's he's just an awesome guy. So thank you all once again for joining me for the 100th episode of Conversations with the Mind. I hope you enjoy it. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane LeMaster, and we are here for an amazing episode. Today is episode number 100, our, uh, what is that called, the centennial episode. Uh, it's quite a big landmark for the podcast. Uh, I started this thing uh, two or three years ago, and um you know, never thought I'd make it this far, but I'm super happy to be here and super happy to be here with a very special guest, Mr. Kevin Matthews, who's been on the show before. Um, I can't recall which number episode you were on before, but it was back, uh, I, I know before number 40, because that's when I upgraded my systems and we were we were recording in my living room on my phone. Um, so that was... Yeah, that was back in the, the early days of the podcast. Um, so welcome back to the show. Thanks, Shane. What a, what an honor to be your 100th guest, my brother. Yeah, I had to make I'm sure just... I brought on some some bigwig for the, for the 100th. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got it. You got the bigwig. And as you can see, my hair is, I don't know, it's looking good these days. You know, it's a little, it's thinning, thinning out a little bit, but, you know, trying to let it ro roam free. Yeah, you got a little <laughs> bit of a of a puff on top. I like it. There's a puff. Yeah, there's the puff. There's the puff. Unstyled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly why I wear a hat today. It's because uh, together, and I think it was like June. It must have been June 2019, right? Because it was just a few weeks after the initiative passed. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you remember how much I was sweating, dude. Do you remember how much I was sweating? I don't remember. I was. I was dripping, dude. I was like, is, is Shane gonna see like? Like how how nervous I am right now, <laughs> like you know, and like totally on cloud nine um, still from our crazy win in Denver. But um, yeah, I was we we could say I was I was a hot mess in some way that day, but it was it was super fun. Yeah, well, hopefully you've been able to relax a little bit into into this new reality that we've helped yeah. create and uh, you've been a huge part of. So. Uh, obviously want to express gratitude for for you and your service and what you do um, to help us all be able to explore our consciousness in, uh, in any way that we choose. So thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're, you're so welcome. Yeah. And thank you, man. It's, it's been a, it's been a, an incredible, it's been a roller coaster for sure. Um, 
you know, and, and the one thing that I, that I just, every single day, and I just, these stories, man, and, and people who come out of the woodwork and say, you know, just this world is changing, man. It's cognitive liberty. That's, that we have a right to heal. Let's do this. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you know, you're connected to so many people across the country. Um, and you talk about these, you know, these stories that come in and, you know, we'll eventually get into talking about boat nature and how stories come into play there. But, um, you know, before I ask my, my standardized question for all guests, I'm wondering, can you share uh, with the audience some of those, some of those um, stories that have been the most impactful for you that have come in from, uh, from people? just all over the country that have, that have talked to you about um, some of these new freedoms. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the first one that comes to mind is, is actually a, a recent one. Um, and a, a woman got in touch with me. She was actually, her information was actually forwarded to me um, from a mutual friend here um, in Colorado. And this is a woman with stage four terminal cancer. And, and she just so happens to be a, a social worker. So she's in the health field. Right. And, you know, she, she exhausted her, her options in terms of finding um, just psychological relief from knowing that she was going to. And she, and she got in touch. She shared a little bit about herself. Um, but then just shared like how tremendous and how impactful it was for her to find an underground guide or therapist to work with her to move through some of the trauma that she was experiencing because of her terminal illness. And the, the, and this was with, with psilocybin mushrooms, right? And then underground practitioners, it's, it's still a schedule one substance throughout the entire country. Um, you know, except, except, except in Oregon, right? She's here in Colorado and it impacted her so much that she wants to get involved with the reform movement, you know, and this is a, a person who certainly doesn't have to take the time to do that. Like, you know, she's, um, you know, approaching the end of her life. And, and this is something that's so important to her that she wants to get. For other people to have some experience. You know, and so there's that story, um, and she's awesome. She's going to jump on to the work we're doing in Denver, and you know, if there's a statewide effort, I think she's going to be involved with that too. Um, another story, you know, I, I I spoke with this young man who's actually based down near Oakland a few weeks back and and a few months back, and he reached out over Instagram, and you know, he he'd been following the movement for a while he'd been following decriminalized nature and he'd been following spore and you know of course he knew about the work that we did and um young kid probably i, th I think he was in his early 20s maybe 22 23 years old and he was looking for community right because he he had an experience he was using like overall kind of wellness purposes, you know, exploring his consciousness also, you know, some mental health stuff, but young, 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 excited 
to get involved, right? And really wanting to find his tribe or find his community or find the others, you know? And, and we had an awesome conversation. And, you know, it's, these, these stories are, they happen all the time. But, you know, like my story is unique. You know, like my, my story is psilocybin mushrooms helped me with, with major depression, you know, um, and kind of catalyzed, some like catalyzed my work here. And, and I mean, it's, it's just, it's the kind of thing that, that in terms of a, of a movement that has the potential to make really incredible That's to me. That's the psychedelic movement. That's the entheogen movement because it's going to impact. At least I think it's going to impact almost every single facet of the human experience. Mm. Um, you know, once once psilocybin, once other entheogens or psychedelics are are um, you know both decriminalized and um, you know regulated in some way. So yeah i mean this the stories and, and what i found which we can talk about a little bit more later obviously but like the stories i think the stories make the biggest difference you know the research is critical but it's when we put a, a, a face and a voice you know to this movement to these stories that has people who are on the fence either become more curious and interested or or even change their mind yeah it's powerful yeah and i just want to um <clears throat> mention to the to the audience um uh, Kevin and I are experiencing a little bit of uh, internet connectivity issues. So if you hear either of us cut out at all during the podcast, I uh, sincerely apologize for that. Hopefully uh, your brain can help fill in the gaps as it's really good at doing. Um, Yeah, but that happens, uh, especially in a modern world where we are so reliant on technology and, uh, you know, we do our best. So um, all right, Kevin. Well, I need to ask you, you know, my only standard question, which I ask all my guests, and I asked you uh, at our last podcast a few years ago. And really, I want to know how um, your answer, how your um, your your ideas around this question have changed since then. And that is, you know, what does uh, the phrase "conversations with the mind" mean to you? Uh, how has that changed for you, and what does it currently mean? in your own practice, in your own uh, work, in your own experience of everyday consciousness? Remember what I said the last time, two years ago? Did, you, did you go back and look at that? No, I don't. Because <laughs> I, I, I know that my definition has likely changed tremendously. Um, it does. Mm-hmm. And and especially in, especially in the last couple of months, after some pretty pretty heavy heavy journeys with with our plant and fungal medicine allies. Um, so, what does conversations with the mind mean to me? Oh, it's a dance. It's a dance. Um, because the the mind can be a trickster in many ways. And when I think of the mind, I, I think of it as being, you know, body from the brain, right? Like we have all these neurochemical processes that happen in our body, in our brain that create or facilitate 
certain feelings from certain hormones that get released throughout our body that are coursing through our veins that cause our heart rate to speed up or slow down or, or, you know, perspiration and sweat to happen. And, and, and it's, it's been interesting. Really recently watching how my mind reacts to certain situations, which is why I say it's a dance. Um, because what I've noticed is that there's a difference between reacting to an external stimulus or an internal stimulus and, and responding to it. And then and, and that's something I've really been focusing on a lot in my own life is, is what's, what's my self-talk? What am, what, am, what am I constantly saying to myself that creates my reality? You know, that the, the, the words that I use, the spells that I cast inside the confines of my own experience. Um, you know, what's what's that logos that that I'm expressing to myself and then expressing to the, to the world. Right. Um, and so I think that I'm learning how to quiet the mind a little bit more. Um, Especially, I, I heard something the other day on another podcast where human beings are processing more information in one day now than a person did a hundred years ago in their entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? What they say with Mike, dude? Like, go have in their mental field to like take a moment to breathe and be in there, be with their environment and be with their body, you know? Um, and, and what I found for myself that I really want to get a lot better at is, is quieting the mind. Cause I, I can be super cerebral, very heady, and I've got to be careful about the conversations I actually have with myself mm-hmm. <laughs> because I am a firm believer that, um, that, that what we say to ourselves creates our reality it creates our experience of the world um which is why it's so important to learn how to respond you know response ability what's our ability to respond to situations as as distinct from you know reacting reacting to me um yeah habitually ingrained I'd like to change. I'd like to respond more than react more. And I think responding more requires more, um, actually mindlessness. Um, I love the term mindfulness, right? Um, I think it's important to be mindful, but I'm also very curious about the term mindlessness. Like how often do we like, like in, in Western culture, right? When we talk about, um, mindlessness it sounds like oh you're crazy it's a crazy person but no what if that's like you're you're like plunged into a state of total awe and and bliss at at simply being alive and being human and there's no mind there to interfere with the experience because you're simply just witnessing it all Mm. you know um so i think being more in the practice of mindlessness and like you know finding that flow state um, is more of a priority for me these days and then learning how 
um, and then and then taking those experiences, those kind of numinous states of consciousness that can be experienced when the mind is out of the way, and and learning how to how to stabilize, or maybe a better way to say this, you know, create a, create more of a lifestyle around those higher states of consciousness. So being more embodied with it, and and like using the mind as as like a tactical tool to like problem solve. Um, and, and I, and I think like also, um, at least for me, I'm learning that, uh, learning how to trust my intuition more than my, than my mind. Like, I, I think the, the mind can be a powerful, like analytical tool to kind of learning how to drop more into my gut and, and like the heart space, um, to listen more, um, yeah, so that's where I'm at today with with conversations with the mind, brother. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things in there that I just wanted to touch on. Um, you know, this this idea of mindlessness is, uh, you know, the the words mindlessness and mindfulness sort of get in the way a little bit um, because you know in the East, mindfulness means paying attention. Uh, to the moment, right? Being completely present um, and and having a mindless mind state, right? Like getting the mind out of the way is what mindfulness means in the East. But you bring it, bring that term over here in the West, and um, mindfulness. I mean, you break it down, mindful. Um, it sort of implies that your mind is full of content, you know. Um, whereas mindless means empty of content. Uh, and you know, it's, it's weird, uh, just that wordplay between the two, but I agree with you, you know, um, I think the mind gets in the way a lot of, a lot of the time. Um, and I'm thinking about even during, uh, altered states of consciousness, you know, when we try to engage the intellectual mind during those experiences uh, and we get into analysis mm -hmm. of the experience as it's happening like that that tends to get in the way of the experiencing of the event itself <laughs> and uh for me anyway when i engage that part of my brain i lose content you know i get stuck in one section of the experience because i'm analyzing it as opposed to if i just let go and let my mind um, sort of, you know, go into a mindless state and just go with the flow and go with the experience, I get so much more from the experience. Um, so that's interesting, uh, those two comparisons. And the other thing you said was, um, it's like a dance, right? And I want you to clarify a little bit, because when I think of a dance, um, I think of two things. I think of dancing with a partner, and then I also think of like freeform dance where you're, you don't have a partner and you're just dancing, you know? Um, and I, I'd like you to sort of pick that apart a little bit and, and explain like maybe which one of those two fit your model a little bit more, because in my mind, you know, the, the mind um, is constantly interacting with our uh, external world as well as, you know, our internal inside of our body world, but, um, 
you know, some people may think that the mind is separate from the body. And so the body is part of the external world. And so it's this interplay between um, the mind and physical reality. Uh, is that dance? Others may feel like it is, um, you know, that this mind-body connection, that they are both um, connected to each other, that they are one thing, um, because we know the mind can influence the body and the body can influence the mind and it's bi-directional that way. Uh, so it's certainly a dance that way. But would you say it's more like uh, dancing with a partner or dancing solo? Mm. Yeah, dan dancing, dancing with my clone. How about that? Mm. Dan dancing with my, or, or dancing with like another aspect of myself. Um. <clears throat> that has a very specific way of thinking, which can be very annoying sometimes. <laughs> it has a very specific way of wanting to do things and, and like move a certain way or, or or jump or move a certain way. And, and there's, and, and like, to me, that's like the habituated mind, you know, and, and some may call that the, the ego, right. Or maybe the, like the, our, our default mode, our default way of being and way of thinking and perceiving the world. And <clears throat> it's unconscious, right? Like, what is it? Is it is it 95% of the decisions that we make are actually subconscious programming, decisions based on our, our subconscious programming. And so like like the dance for me is is like identifying like identifying the ways of thinking that stimulate and create ways of being that are that are no longer useful and learning how to how to like you know switch up the beat a little bit or try a new try a new dance move mm. um receiving the world and it's just so interesting to me how ingrained some of our our how, how ingrained some of my ways of thinking are and you know like like you talk about dancing and I wonder if it's maybe a Freudian slip that I actually said that. Cause like, I want to dance, but I'm terrified of dancing. It takes a lot to get me to dance. Um, you know, maybe like, you know, really responsible higher doses of LSD and MDMA to get me to dance, you know, or, or like some really like deep, you know, kind of dirty, like jungle trance music to like wake up the, the, the beast inside of me that wants to, cut the dance floor open. Um, and, and I like, I'm just, I, I want to, I, I want to experience new ways of, of perceiving the world and, and really upgrade. Um, just the, the way that I think about things. Um, you know, and, and especially now, like looking back over the past couple of years and the work that we've done in the campaign and um, now having, you know, this this broad network of amazing people across the country and in some cases globally, like I'm learning how to show up as a better conduit for this work uh, and, and this work being like in the psychedelic ecosystem to not only like, you know, reform and change laws, but you know, you and I are both at the forefront of like a new culture that's emerging, right? And so how, how do we like steward that responsibly? And, and 
what I'm at least learning for myself is like, man, there's a lot of stuff about me that I would like to, to integrate and transcend, right. To use like Wilbur philosophy. Um, because um, we're not conducive to the work. Right. So it's like learning how to separate the wheat from the chaff in as many ways as possible and just constantly refine, um, you know, refine the experience and refine the way that that I respond to the world. Um, and it's a struggle, dude. Like, you know, I mean, you're a, you know, you're you're a, a licensed addictions counselor. So I'm, I'm sure you see with your clients like their own habitual ingrained ways of being that have caused trauma in their life in many ways, right? Or or trauma that induced certain ways of acting and behaving and being in the world. Like these are real things, man. Like our what fascinates me is that our, I'm, I'm learning to look at our body, like our, our body mind more as this like really highly advanced, like biotechnology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some ways, like, like kind of like that computer system. To hit the reset button and close out all the tabs and then not go to those tabs anymore because they're a distraction. You know, but how do we like, how do we start to, again it's like all everything comes into play it's like you know your environment it's just like it's just like set and setting and um you know when when you're going to have a a, a, an informed psychedelic experience right it's like set and setting what's your environment you know what's your intention um you know all these things come into play you know how how is how, how are my how's my office set up to kind of optimize productivity right or when I go home, how is my, the, the environment at home set up to inspire like rest and relaxation and rejuvenation, you know, and then what's the, what's like the internal set and setting and the external set and setting to, to create, to, to, to create the opportunity for and there probably is, but like optimization, like to be our best selves, you know, so Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love when you, uh, you said, you know, the body mind is, um, super advanced form of biotech. Mm-hmm. Um, it so is, and we don't, we don't think about ourselves necessarily that way. I mean, we just think of ourselves as, you know, flesh sacks or, you know, just, <laughs> we're just humans. Right. Uh, but if you can think about yourself as biotechnology, um, uh, you can, you can begin to, you know, wonder and, and contemplate and even find ways to hack your own system, right? And that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about here is uh, hacking that, those subconscious automatic patterns so that we can um, recreate uh, newer patterns, things that, that work better for us. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if it's 95% or not. I don't, I don't know that uh, statistic, but I do know that our subconscious is so much more powerful than our conscious mind. And yet we tend to put our conscious mind up on this pedestal like it is the ultimate key to understanding when really it, you know, it, it takes up so, so much less, um, you know, energy and, uh, you know, our, our, our subconscious is really what is, is controlling us. So if we can like learn how to tap into that and learn how to value our subconscious a little bit more, including things like dream states and, um, trance states and all sorts of things, then I think we can, we can learn how to hack our systems a little bit better 
and uh, reprogram or meta program ourselves to be better. And dude, I'm the same exact way when it comes to dancing. Like it takes so much for me to, to get into a place where I can uh, dance. But as soon as I do, and I completely let go, like it is the best feeling. Uh, I cannot, I can't describe it. I, I wish I could do that on a regular basis. Um, you know, just by like hitting a switch. And I'm so envious of people who are able to just go out there and, and bust a move, but, uh, you know, letting go into that kind of space and turning off the, I think that, I think it's my mind getting in the way for sure, where I th I'm thinking about other people's judgments of my dancing and my judgments of myself and, um, you know, is this appropriate and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you get, you get a few entheogens in me and I'm like, I don't care what other people think. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move this way and it feels great. And hopefully they like it too, because I'm having a blast. So, um, <laughs> you know, I love that. I love that hack, uh, being able to move and being able to, you know, I get, I get something similar from my jujitsu, which is, um, you know, just that movement, that flow, um, feeling completely embodied, feeling like the mind and the body are completely in sync. Um, and at this point in my jujitsu career, you know, letting go, being able to let go of judgments of others in the room. Um, because I, by now, like most people in a, in a jujitsu room are looking at my, my uh, sparring, my rolling as like motivation or as, as some way for them to learn. And so, um, so I'm not really worried too much about what they think about my jujitsu because I know my jujitsu is, is advanced and it's good. Uh, or it's getting there. It's getting better. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm excellent at anything in particular, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's really good. Uh, I like the, the biotech uh, analogy for it. You know what we were just doing there too? We were, well, I'll speak for myself. When I stated out loud, when I spoke into existence, into the world that I'm, when I, when I say I'm afraid of dancing, I just reaffirmed yeah. and strengthened that, that neural pathway that has me be afraid of dancing. Totally. Like in every instant, and that's what I'm talking about, right? Like, especially when we speak it out loud, mm -hmm. like that's, it holds power. And, and, it, and it, you know, so maybe a better way, what I can start working on is saying in the past, I did X, Y, and Z, but now I. People think so I'm going to dance like everyone's watching, mm -hmm. right? Cause then that way, if I know that everyone is watching, then, then it doesn't matter what I do. Cause they're all watching anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's so important, man, like language is so critical and, and, you know, being allowed to speak our mind is <laughs> so important. Um, and, and I think like, yeah, like there's, for me, there's certainly a lot of things come up. I mean, dancing, dancing is a great metaphor. Like, is it, is it Shiva that the, the, the Hindu God that dances, is he the dancer? Um, I think he's like dancing the world into existence. Maybe your listeners out there, I'm sure some of them will know, but like hold, this whole life is a dance, right? Um, you know, and, and, and I'd like to, to work on my, on my moves a little bit.
Yeah, I'd like to become a uh, full-on like uh, break dancer. By the way, and I know this has been, you know, we're obviously recording. You, you'd like to become what? A full-on break dancer. Dude. With life. I have a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Like, <laughs> how cool would that be? Mm-hmm. I, I have a buddy who's a break dancer. And we went to, uh, there's a place out here. I'm sure you've probably heard of it, Everland. Um, it's an, it's an amazing collective of individuals who bought some land kind of in not kind of around the like Castle Rock area, a little bit South of Castle Rock. And they have like 120 acres. It's, it's amazing. Um, and anyway, long story short, they were, they, they were, they started hosting some more gatherings recently now that the, the restrictions have uplifted in some ways. And there's a buddy of mine who's just an epic break dancer and I'm kind of sitting there with my like my fuzzy jacket, you know, and looking out at these people dancing. And then he's just like strolls right up and just like, just whatever he does, he's just like, wah, 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 bam, and does these moves without a care in the world. <laughs> Download me some of that, that, uh, you know, that um, confidence. I'd like mm-hmm. some of that. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, I think it's I, I think it's a good time for us to transition into uh, you know talking about some of the stuff that you're currently doing and that you and I are um, you know working out uh, as far as projects working together. I was hoping yeah. that we could dig into um, vote nature first, and uh, you know I have a few you know a few questions around that uh, you know. I, I know I know quite a bit about it, but the, I know the audience probably doesn't, and so I think this is a great platform um, to be able to to talk about what Vote Nature is and uh, what what the mission is and what uh, Vote Nature is trying to accomplish and how it's doing that. Um, so yeah, why not? Why don't you just kick it off with, uh, you know, share with the audience what what you've got going on with Vote Nature? Awesome, yeah. Thank you, brother. So Vote Nature is an online digital citizen lobbying platform. And it makes it really, really, really easy, novel, meaningful, and fun for anyone to get in touch with their elected officials about legislative issues that are important to them um and it, and it was birthed from the idea was birthed from trend obvious um kind of earlier earlier this year and at the time it's and, and i know people might be like what psychedelic lobbyist that's blasphemy well no it's really good man because like the work that I want to do as a lobbyist is to be that bridge between the psychedelic community that's out there, um, especially here in Denver and here in Colorado, a bridge between the psychedelic community and our lawmakers and policymakers. Um, and to really do, do the best that I can to kind of represent the needs, wants, and desires of this constituency so that we can create equitable you know, responsible policy reform. Um, and so a little bit of the backstory earlier this year, we were 
attempting to legislature here in Colorado. And that didn't go through for a number of reasons. It was a, a pretty wild session this year at the legislature. Um, but our bill ended up getting blocked by Senate leadership. It, was, it, was, it wasn't even introduced. So, but what I realized kind of learning the ins and outs of, of being a lobbyist and in, in some ways kind of being like a dolphin in a shark tank is what I realized. Like, um, you know, it's a very highly, obviously a highly political environment and people have, you know, lawmakers, policymakers, elected officials. I, I learned a couple of things. First of all, what surprised me to hear from some mentors is that our elected officials don't know anything about these issues. <laughs> Let's just use, you know, psilocybin for, for example, right? They don't know anything about psilocybin. So they actually rely on individuals on these issues so that they can then speak to their colleagues, you know, in, in the state house or the state assembly um, and educate their, their colleagues. I was like, wow, okay, cool. So perfect. I'm more than happy to educate lawmakers about psilocybin and other entheogens and this whole kind of ecosystem. Um, and the other thing I learned is that, and this, I think this seems kind of obvious at the end of the day, but like policymakers, you know, lawmakers, let's just say a state senator, they have a constituency, they represent a certain part of the state, right? Um, and it's really important for those constituents to be able to basically reach out to their elected officials and say, hey, we support this issue. Um, so take, for example, what's happening in California right now. California uh, Senate, Senate Bill 519, which is a bill that's going to decriminalize in California uh, just passed the health committee at the state assembly. It, it passed through the Senate last month, the state Senate, um, and this, the minute got sent back to the assembly, which is their house, this, their, their state house of representatives. And it just passed their health committee. Now, every single time a bill that's been introduced at, at any state legislature, um, it has to go through these different committees before it goes to like, say, a, a full vote of the state Senate. It goes through the budget and the budget committee, the, you know, the health committee, the finance committee, et cetera. Um, every single time it goes through committee, there's this giant list of calls to action um, for constituents, you know, show, call in and testify at the committee meeting, um, you know, show up um, on the day of the committee hearing and, and, you know, at, at Or, or, or you're or, or not having any support for this bill, send an email to your representative. Um, giant laundry list of calls to action for folks. But it's like this is that participatory democracy that this country was supposedly built upon, right, for citizens to be engaged in the political process. What, what I found is that that's one of the most impactful ways that we can influence lawmakers to change policy is if, if their constituents show up and are sending emails, writing letters, um, testifying at committee hearings, et cetera, it's letting those lawmakers know that, the, that that's what the people want, right? Um, and, and so I needed to figure out a way to make it really easy for people in Colorado and honestly nationally to, to 
engage with their elected officials here. And that's how Vote Nature was born, because Vote Nature collapsed. And it's, it's, it really utilizes video um, to share these stories. And so it's like, you know, let, let's say, for example, let's just go back and look at California again, Senate Bill 519. With Vote Nature, someone will be able to take their phone, record a short video, say, hey, my name is Kevin. I really support this bill because psilocybin mushrooms changed my life. I no longer struggle with my depression and anxiety because of these incredible mushrooms, right? Short video, 30 seconds with the click of a button, they can send that right to their elected official. And so then if we imagine thousands of these types of emails being sent to our elected officials every week, flooding the inboxes of, of these, these lawmakers, um, theoretically, they're supposed to listen to their constituents, right, and support these measures. So vote nature is a way for out there in the world um you know these incredible stories of healing and breakthrough and transformation around plant medicine um, but also to get those stories in front of people who have the power to change laws um and with the click of a button so that's that's what vote nature is and i think it has a lot of potential it's um you know still fundraising right now I'm excited because we're going to get a chance to do a pilot test of Vote Nature in, in Denver um, over the next couple of months uh, because we're in Denver. We're right now working to expand on the initiative that we passed two years ago, which we can talk. I'm not, not sure when, when to segue to that, but um, we have an opportunity for that there's a very strong and robust community of people across the entire country that wants to see these laws changed. You know, I have a buddy of mine that says drugs won the drug war last year in 2020, right? Like we had measure 110 in Oregon that decriminalized small amounts of all drugs in the state. And then of course we had measure 109 in Oregon that uh, created the country's first legal therapeutic model for access to psilocybin. Um, we have, oh my goodness, or states. Yeah, we have DC. What's that? We have DC. Yep, yep, Maybe we have DC. Yeah. Yep, DC. I was going to say eight cities in the country. DC. So what is it? It's, it's Denver psilocybin and then the rest of these cities are all other entheogens right mm -hmm. santa cruz ann arbor washington dc um cambridge massachusetts ann arbor is in, in michigan by the way um and then we have cambridge massachusetts somerset massachusetts and i want to say newburgh massachusetts i'm not sure if that's right but eight cities that have decriminalized entheogens and this year at least as of a couple of months ago, there were 12 states, 12 states that were considering some kind of psychedelic reform. Um, 12. Most of those states now, you know, th those bills have either not, uh, they were either tabled or, or haven't gone through, but this is a conversation that's in the zeitgeist. 
-hmm. And it's not, you know, and and it's in the zeitgeist at the state level where, you know, elected officials are, are, around psychedelics. And, and most of these are, are for, you know, for, for psilocybin. Um, and, and so it's just the kind of thing where I, where I think that if we're going to, well, we, we have, we have an opportunity again to demonstrate that like, you know, community wants to be involved in this. They want to see these laws get passed. And if there's any way that we can, you know, throttle that a little bit and, and also make the process a little more transparent for, for regular people, um, and for people who just, who, who want to get involved and, and make an impact in this space, but they don't necessarily have the time to like work on a campaign or go collect signatures, or, you know, they don't have time to go lobby their elected officials themselves. Vote Nature is a tool that, that will make it really simple and easy for folks to, to get involved and, and make an impact because no, no impact is small in this space. Every story, every That's something we learned in Denver, you know, because we won by such a slim margin in Denver, it's 50.6% of the vote um, that demonstrated that every single door we knocked on, every single person that we talked to, every single Facebook post, every single one of those mattered. And, and so for anybody who wants to get involved, even the, the seemingly smallest action can make a giant difference. And it can be the difference between a person you know, voting yes or no on these issues. So it's an advocacy tool at the end of the day. And I think um, depending on, you know, depending on how well it does, it can scale. Uh, Vote Nature can scale um, nationally. And I think in the future, it can be a tool that can also advocate for lots of different types of issues, whether we're talking about environmental issues, other drug policy reform issues, uh, Vote Nature has the potential to, um, you know, make, make an impact in, in how we practice democracy in this country. Yeah, I think um, the parts that I love the most about uh, Vote Nature and the, the concepts behind it are, number one, uh, re-democratization of our political system, right? Um, I can't tell you how many people are out there who feel like their vote just doesn't count, that no matter which way that they vote, whatever elected official is, uh, you know, is in office at the time, you know, they're just going to make whatever decisions they want to make, regardless of what the voter says. Uh, So I love the idea that, you know, now, not only does your vote count, but your voice counts. And this is a great way to to do that. Right. And um, another thing that I love about it is the way that vote nature engages the story, the story aspect of people um, because storytelling has been a part of human culture since the beginning of time, you know, cave paintings are a way that people were telling stories. Um, And it still is, you know, every book you read, every movie you watch, um, every advertisement you see, everything is a story and being able to give some power back to the constituents to be able to tell their own stories. I think that can be so much more impactful than, 
you know, sending a report to uh, a politician to read and how many reports they get across their desk and that they just skim or they have their assistant read and they're just like, oh God, I don't want to read this dry stuff. But then they see these videos of people's actual stories and people crying on these videos and people saying, you know, this completely changed my life. Um, I think that holds so much power and so much uh, leverage uh, in the future. So I love those pieces about it. Now, for listeners uh, who want to know more, they can go to votenature.org, and vote nature is just one word, and figure out more about it and see how they can get involved. But Kevin, you said um, you know vote nature is still in uh, the piloting stage, still seeking uh, funding through fundraisers. So, if there's anybody listening out there who either wants to become a fundraiser themselves or has connections uh, or, or network, yeah, networking connections to people with funds who want to get involved in the psychedelic movement. I know that there's a lot of people out there right now that just want to find some outlet to be able to pump money into because they believe in this cause, but they don't know which organizations to give it to. And I'm, I'm telling them right now, Vote Nature is a great one to give it to. So how do people get involved on that level with um, fund sharing, fundraising? How do they get in touch with Vote Nature to do that? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the best way is to go to votenature.org and um, people can sign up right there and they can sign up for the mailing list. And it's free. Um, right? and it's, it's free. It's yeah. free. Um, you know, we're going to have some, some subscription, some subscription options in the future for members who want to be, you know, like, like monthly supporters of our work, because uh, that'll be important, but uh, they can sign up, folks can get on the mailing list and um, individuals will be the first to know when the platform actually goes live and, and be able to get in there and, and kind of, you know, explore around what's possible, start seeing these videos. It, you know, it, it operates similarly to a social network. So there's like individuals when they, when the site is live. They'll be able to follow certain individuals on there who are maybe more active. Um, it's gamified so people can earn badges and awards for their level of participation. Um, and, you know, I, I think he, hearing you share what you said, Shane, you know, this is an, this, I think we have to do everything we can these days to reawaken a participatory democracy in this country, because I've been finding myself, you know, becoming a nihilist around a lot of this stuff, Like I don't care anymore. My voice doesn't matter. My vote doesn't count. It doesn't really make a difference, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's actually our voices do matter. You know, the government serves the people. At least that's the way that that it's supposed to be in this country. Psychedelics in particular are, well, I think it's the most exciting political issue, political issue that, that we have right now because it is a political issue be, because it has the potential to, to change so many things. Mm-hmm. So votenature.org, folks can sign up for the mailing list. Um, and then people can also, um, they can also email me directly. You can use email Kevin at votenature.org. Um, 
as well. If people want to learn more or if they want to get more of a deep dive into, into what's possible with boat nature. Okay. Um, and you're so right. Um, you know, for the longest time I was, uh, sort of an anarchist and I, uh, anti-authoritarian and I still carry a lot of those sentiments a lot of the time, but, um, but yeah, I, I refused to participate in the voting, um, system, you know, I didn't believe in the system and so I didn't want to participate in it, but what I came to uh, be, or, and, and still learning to realize is that, you know, voting is a right and it's, it's not a right that everybody in the world has. A lot of countries don't allow their people free speech. They don't allow their people to vote. Um, we have that freedom here in this country. And the problem with taking a, like a sort of a nihilistic stance is that if you choose not to participate in the system uh, because the system is not working, what ends up happening is you give up that power, you give up that freedom to those governmental bodies, and then they can just do whatever they want with it, right? If, if you don't um, voice your opinion, then, then your opinion really doesn't matter, right? Uh, your opinion only matters if you voice it, you know, and if, if, you, if you share it, um, because if you don't, then, you know, imagine if, if, you know, well, what, what is it, you know, the current presidential elections, right? Like only like 50 some percent of people actually vote for those things. And so, you know, our, our governmental leadership is based off of that, right? When if everybody voted, who knows what could have happened? Who knows what kind of changes it could be? And if you're, if you're out there complaining about what's going on in the country, but you're not participating in changing things, then I don't know if you have a right to be complaining about things, you know? Um, I love, uh, I think it was Ben Franklin said something like, um, you know, those who are willing to give up their freedoms for safety uh, will get neither of those, something like that. Um, yeah. I think it was Ben Franklin, but I mean, I find that true. Like if, if you, if you give up your power uh, and give up the power to shape and mold society to elected officials and you, you give up your say in the process, then, you know, you're giving up a lot of your power in, in how these, how this country is going to be run, how it's going to be shaped. And uh, I don't know. I, I find that that's just rolling over to the powers that be. So mm. I love what vote nature is doing. And um, you know, I, I'm really excited to see, uh, the effort continue, but, you know, sort of shifting a little bit, um, there's a lot of decriminalization going on all over the country. You mentioned, you know, 12 States, um, this is a tidal wave, this is a tidal yeah. wave coming in and not just, um, you know, not just with, with drugs, but with consciousness in general, taking a forefront, you know, people are waking up to the idea that, oh, hey, like, I have this thing, it's called consciousness, and I get to explore it. And I don't have to be told uh, how to explore it or when or, you know, in what ways. And, um, you know, I think people are waking up to this. It's, it's not just a, a drug policy revolution, but it's, it's also a consciousness revolution, um, right. like this tidal wave in. 100%. I'm 100%. You know, and, and I'd, I'd like to start talking more about cognitive liberty mm -hmm. in, in this space because, I mean, so first of all, 
a, a person's ability to utilize naturally occurring plant and fungi medicines, it's a human right. That's a human right. Um, and I can say that for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first reason is that aside from the last 50 years of history, um, these, these compounds for thousands of years, right? And, and albeit they've been used in, in structure and responsible settings, but these, you know, psilocybin mushrooms, for example, were an integral part of, of, the tribal culture of a lot of indigenous communities in the past. Same thing with, you know, with, with ayahuasca, right. Being prevalent down in, um, in the Amazon. Um, same thing with, with, uh, uh, peyote, you know, being a sacrament for, for native American tribes here in North America, here, here in the U S like these, these, these plant and fungi, medicines, these compounds, these entheogens have, have, we've been evolving with, with, with these for thousands of years. And like, arguably, you know, I, I actually love the theory that the, the rapid growth and formation of the human neocortex, you know, there, there's nothing to prove that's not the case. Um, it's still hard to prove that is the case, but you know, it could be when you have, you know, ancient hunter gatherer tribes, you know, roaming the landscape and finding nourishment and food from, you know, from cow patties and it's not so far fetched. Mm -hmm. Um, and then something we don't talk about very often, which we're going to start talking a lot more about over the next few months is that in Denver, someone's going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but in Denver, of all the places where entheogens have been decriminalized, Denver is the only city where it's recognized as a human right. Mm. So in Denver, when we passed initiative 301 and it became law, that law was inserted into chapter 28 of the Denver Municipal Code. What is Denver's human rights code? And so right there, it kind of begs the question, you know, there were over 90,000 people in the city and county of Denver who voted yes on our initiative. That means there are 90,000 people in Denver who believe that a person's right to use, possess, store, and cultivate psilocybin mushrooms is a human right. Um, to me, that kind of begs the question, well, if 90,000 people in Denver think it's a human right, um, that's precedent setting right there. And, and one could, could make the argument that, that a person's ability to use these substances is a human rights issue. Mm. And, and I'm going to roll with that because I think it's accurate. I think it's true. Um, it's something we don't talk about a whole lot in this space. It's a radical message to share. It gets people's attention, you know, just, just in terms constantly trying to figure out like messaging that that's um that that people want to listen to and learn about so and and what goes along with that is that those of us who are operating in this space we believe that individuals should have the choice and the freedom to decide how they want to interact with these medicines meaning that people have self-autonomy 
people have self-regulation, that there's self-government governance. Um, and then even going a step further that our, our communities can self-regulate and self-govern with these medicines, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's why, you know, decriminalization is critical and why within decriminalization, creating um, opportunities for community, for community healing, uh, um, to emerge and, and really focusing on how, how, how are we focused locally? Um, because even, even though say, for example, you know, in Oregon measure 109 passed, great, it's a state law, but what's the impact that that has locally, you know, how are, how are individuals and members of communities and neighborhoods getting access to the healing that's, that's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and healing can look like healing potentially from trauma, right. Or it can look like finding a way to, to have a new perspective or perception of the world. Um, and, and I think to that end too, um, you know, and I'm curious what you think about this, Shane. And I don't think it's actually like experience that we have and it's the integration afterwards. You know, it's the follow through that actually catalyzes more of that healing. You know, it's, it's stabilizing the experience into into our normal everyday life. Um, so, you know, so, you know, so to me, this, I mean, to me, this is a human rights issue. Um, it is a drug policy reform issue. It is a mental health issue. It's also a human rights issue. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it here. Like, I think the controlled substances act, once people understand like really the, the political motivations behind this, the CSA, the, the, the Controlled Substances Act is one long 50-year bloody streak of crimes against humanity. Mm. And, you know, we've, we've created policies that are to be incarcerated for the possession of small amounts of these substances. And it's specifically targeting certain, you know, certain, certain groups of the population as well. And so the reason why I say that, well, that I, that I brought up that my, my buddy said drugs won the drug war last year with, with DC and Oregon is that, you know, I, I, I think Americans are ready to, to start prioritizing treatment over criminalization here. And it's so interesting to me that, you know, basically with the flick of a switch, you know, with a stroke of a pen, these all of these substances became highly illegal and vilified and now we have to do so much work 50 years later to to um both change the laws and and repair the hundreds of thousands of of lives globally right so you know we have a lot of work to do and we need allies we really need people to, you know, if, if there, if anybody out there kind of resonates with, with what I, at least what I'm sharing today and what we're talking about, like, you know, in order to, to, to scale the amount of like 
treatment that we need to address our mental and behavioral health issues in this country that may in, in much part may have been created by these crazy drug policies. You know, we need the, well, the 35% of American voters to stand up and come out of the psychedelic closet per se. And I, I say 35% because there was a recent um, Harris poll that showed that um, 35 voters believe that um, psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms have a medical value. And so we need that 35% to stand up. And, you know, is that, what is that? Is that 100 million people? 50 million people, you know, and, and I, I forget what the, what the term or the phrase is, but, you know, if we think about like the hundredth monkey theorem, or we think about like how uh, was it like, like morphogenetic fields, I forget the author there, but like when an idea spreads, we're seeing this with the, with the psychedelic movement, you know, it started in Denver. We dropped a couple spores here in the city that spread across the country. And now two years later, we have, 12 states, eight cities, what's going to happen in 2022? There's going to be more, you know? And so if we can find a unified voice here, knowing that we're, you know, we're going to have differences in, in, in how the policy should look. Um, more natural, but if at the very least we can all stand up with, with a unified voice together to change these laws, then I think we can see some real magic happen in this country. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, I have no doubt that that's going to happen eventually. And how it happens, I think, you know, just like with a lot of processes in life, like we can have goals, we can have, yeah, we can have goals towards outcomes that we want to see happen, but we need to let go of how it's going to happen. Because if we hold on too (laughs) tight to a certain way, um, and it doesn't go that way and we stay rigid, then that gets in our way too, right? So having that flexibility, that flexible mind to be able to, to say, yeah, this is going to happen, but we don't know how yet, you know, it's going to go through many different iterations and a lot of people are going to have their opinions and, you know, we're going to find the best possible route uh, given our circumstances. I agree with you. But once that happens, um, so here's a question for you and and something that I actually, I spoke with um, Sean McAllister uh, on a different episode about, but um, so the idea of regulation, right? So you said uh, at the communal level, at the local level, um, you brought up the term self-regulated, right? So with cognitive liberty, you know, with cognitive liberty comes the idea that the individual human entity can self-regulate, right? Like they, they have the ability to take in whatever substance they want, as long as they can uh, regulate themselves and, and not do harm to others, right? Um, now, at the communal level, that also means self-regulated communal practice, right? Like, uh, you know, communal healing systems, and depending on which community you're a part of, which, uh, which type of uh, healings are available and things like that. But then we start to take that term regulation, um, you know, which oftentimes comes with legalization, as we saw with cannabis, right? Like the the industry becomes regulated, and it becomes regulated at the state level, right? Where now you have to have certain testing and certain um, safety measures in place and taxation, and all these uh, red tape things that come into play, right? 
So I've heard lots of arguments for uh, a regulated market because of the safety. Uh, it would make the legislators happy. You know, it's, it's, some people say it's the only way it's going to happen is if it's regulated and taxed and the rest of the community gets some benefits, some, some goes to education, whatever. I've also heard um, arguments against an unregulated uh, market where like it's, it's more in line with the community, right? So, so there's no such thing as a black market anymore. It's legal, but people can buy and sell between individuals. They don't need to go to a dispensary to get their uh, psilocybin or whatever, that they can just grow it on their own. You know, this sort of unregulated market model. Um, and I want to offer a third uh, a third option, which includes both. I think that uh, it doesn't need to be either or, but it can be both and. And we can have both a regulated market and a legal unregulated market because part of cognitive liberty means that you don't have to go to a therapist to enjoy uh, the healing potentials of these medicines. If you want to, as part of your cognitive liberty, you should have a right to be able to explore on your own up in the mountains uh, or, or whatever, as long as you are regulating yourself and you're staying safe and you're not putting anyone in danger by doing it. So I think it doesn't need to be one or the other, regulated or unregulated. I think that there can be lanes for all three. There can be regulated market, uh, an unregulated market, and you know maybe even a, a recreational market. Um, and I think there's, there's space uh, and there should be space within this cognitive liberty uh, type movement for all three of those options. We shouldn't be, uh, again, like restricted to just one mode of, of uh, exploring our consciousness. You know, I shouldn't have to go, um, although it's advised, you know, uh, go see a therapist, go, go get a guide, go get a sitter, but I shouldn't have to um, if, if that's not my prerogative, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm. I, I do. And, and I completely agree with you. Um, I don't want to play the game of polarization anymore as much as possible. So when we're, you know, decriminalization could be looked at as being unregulated, right? It's and, and the way it's set up in Denver is that we've, we we're, we're essentially telling law enforcement not to make arrests. Um, it's a low priority for folks, right? For law enforcement. And we already have laws in place for individuals who um, may be presenting themselves as a public health or safety risk or issue. You know, drunk driving, driving under the influence, you know, public nuisance, public, public disturbance. We already have laws to keep the public safe. Um, and we also have to consider that these substances weren't regulated prior to the Controlled Substances Act. There was no regulation. And by the way, there was also thousands of research papers peer-reviewed looking at the, the efficacy of, this is in, in the 50s and 60s, right? Looking at the efficacy of of these substances to treat things like mental and, and behavioral health things. And, 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 and I wonder if we look back and if we, if we look at 
what regulation might have meant to um, indigenous groups, right? Like in many of those contexts, these, from what I understand, you know, there was a, a shaman or a healer who was the steward of these medicines for their community, right? And so there was a little bit of a gatekeeper there, but that was also, we're also talking, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago in cultures where these plants and fungi were an integral part of their society, right? Sure. I mean, there were, there were gatekeepers, but there were also, um, I mean, you could just walk out your door and go to a cow patch, yeah. eat some if you <laughs> wanted to, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there are, right, exactly. but there's always, there's, there's probably always been people who don't want to go to the shaman to get their, yeah. to get their medicine. And, and that's, that's the other side of this too. Like, so the, the argument is that it's, it can't be either, or it can't be either decriminalization or regulation. It's not going to work. Mm. It needs to be both. end. And I, I love that you, that you use those, those words specifically because it needs to be both decriminalization and regulation. Now we, we get into a, a, a headier conversation when we talk about different types of regulation, different types of therapeutic models, let's say, but, and, and so, and, and the argue, so the argument for ther for, for therapeutic regulation is that let's just say somebody who's suffering from complex PTSD or anxiety um, or depression, you know, and they're new to this work. They've never had an experience with psychedelics before. I would say that in most cases, that individual is going to want to go to be in a more structured, potentially clinical setting, right? With a, with a doctor and a medical staff. From the data that we have, both from psychedelic survey, um, well, the psychedelic survey data says that that's only 20% of people, 20% of people who are utilizing psilocybin, let's say for mental health reasons, have a diagnosable condition where they do need to have some medical oversight, but the other 80%, they can either control their symptoms or they're looking at this from the perspective of their consciousness and they may not have a diagnosis, right? So you're right. Like the rest of those people are, they may want to go and sit in the clinic, but they may also want to go for a walk in the forest or sit in the comfort and the privacy of their own home with a trusted friend or guide to sit with them on their experience. Um, you know, so it, 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 that's why this, like all of this, it comes down to choice and freedom, you know, and if we, when new policies are being created, if we leapfrog decriminalization, and we go straight to a top-down regulated model, um, we run the risk of creating exclusivity in this space, meaning that the folks potentially who need access to these substances the most may not be able to get it mm -hmm. as easily as others, right? At the very least, decriminalization makes it is liberty. It's not really access, it's, it's liberty. It means that let's use Denver, for example, it means that people in, who are in the city and county of Denver, they can grow their own mushrooms at home, right? And then now we're hoping to change the law so that folks can not only grow their own mushrooms, but they can, they can share or exchange those mushrooms with other adults. 
and that folks can actually gather together in groups of two or more to engage in practices and ceremony with, with this medicine. Um, so we, we need that. And, and I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens when we, when we actually incubate psilocybin and psilocybin services in community, right? Like, like what's it going to look like to have like a neighborhood, a, a place where you know that you can go in your neighborhood to get some help if you need it or to have an experience if you need it, right? Knowing that that's going to right? Like it's going to look different in the black community than the white community. It's going to look different in the Native American community than the Asian community. And I say those demographics because those are the, the demographics that we have mostly here in Denver and the Hispanic community, obviously. The Hispanic community is 30% of Denver voters, right? Or Coloradans. So these working with these medicines looks different in different communities, which is why we need it decriminalized. And so that Communities can self-regulate and self-govern. Individuals have the choice and the freedom to decide where they want to go, who they want to see and sit with, um, how much they want to take, you know. And, and I think it's important since we are talking about, you know, a Schedule One substance. <laughs> it's really important for individuals to understand that with psilocybin, uh, it's not for everyone, right? There are, there's definitely risks. Um, those risks can be highly mitigated with what's your intention, what's your environment, um, you know, who are you with? Um, I, I tend to think that, that environment actually has more of an impact on the experience than anything else. Um, and so, you know, for, for folks out there, I'd be, I'd be curious, I'm willing to bet, Shane, that a lot of your listeners likely are are experienced with with psychedelics. Maybe not, maybe not, but um, you know, it's it's important for folks to do their research, right? And then, yeah, like we also can't kid ourselves and think that decriminalization only is going to address the needs that we have at scale. You know, Colorado is the 48th worst state in the country for mental health. Mm. We're the 33rd worst state in the country in terms of access to mental health services. We have a, a national. It's clear that many of the current treatment protocols and interventions to address mental and behavioral health issues don't work for a lot of people. Um, and, and that, you know, Entheogens, psychedelics like psilocybin, the, the research shows that they can be highly effective. And so we need we need novel, novel options, novel treatment options. And, and we and we need them at scale as well. And so that's you know, the the cha- the challenge comes in. The, the challenge we have is creating equitable regulation. Um, you know, meaning how are we ensuring that the people who need access to this the most have access to it so that it doesn't cost an arm and a leg to get, to have an experience with psilocybin in a clinical setting. Um, and, and I've, you know, I've been learning a lot about this just in the past eight, no, the past six months about health equity, right? When we talk, when we talk about regulated models, we want to be creating uh, curb cut policies, 
what and what does curb curb cut mean? So when, when you look at a sidewalk and you see that the sidewalk slopes at street intersections, that's accessible to wheelchairs, it's accessible to bikes, it's accessible to strollers. It's an accessible sidewalk because it slopes at the bottom. That's that's the curb cut right there. And so when we talk about curb cut policy, we we need to keep health equity in mind. And and health equity is, you know looking at health equity is basically looking at the systems that are in place that ensure that that everybody has the same amount of of access to to in in this is and so if we create policy that centers access for marginalized individuals and low-income people then everybody wins Mm -hmm. and you know i think this is a long game I mean, I'm in this for the rest of my life. I think that even though, even though the movement has, the movement to, to, for policy reform, even though that movement has expanded so and grown so rapidly in the past two years, seems like it's almost exponential how fast it's, it's been, how fast it's been going. These are all still experiments. You know, Oregon is an experiment. We're going to find out how well that system works. Um, Denver right now where psilocybin is decriminalized, that's an experiment. We've collected a lot of data in the past two years to see how well it's working, you know, and, and looking at safety and all these things. So a lot of concerns people have um, some of the, the, the opposition that we had was that people thought the sky was gonna fall, that we would have, you know, that we'd have individuals tripping on the streets of the 16th street mall and out of control. And that there would be a lot more crime and, and, you know, cartel activity and and major distribution of mushrooms throughout Denver hasn't happened at all. Um, You know, there, there are folks who make bad decisions on, on psychedelics. That's never going to stop. Right. However, what what we've seen at least in Denver is that the sky has not fallen. Um, you know, arrests have have decreased by about half um, for psilocybin arrests, psilocybin related arrests. By the way, most of those arrests involve other illicit substances, heroin, um, you know, methamphetamines, um, you know, other you know really damaging, potentially damaging substances. And we're also finding that most folks who are using psilocybin in Denver and in Colorado, according to the observational data, are doing so responsibly and with intention. And most of them are using them for health and wellness reasons. And, and thankfully, thankfully, right now we have the media on our side. Um, you know, I, I, I lost track of how many, and, and it's every week, but I lost track of how many um, articles that have been in the last two years regarding psilocybin and other psychedelics, and they're all mostly positive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thankfully, um, thankfully, like what's in the zeitgeist right now, what's, I, th- I think what's in the awareness of people is that psilocybin powerful technology. And because of that, they need to be stewarded responsibly and that they need to be, you know, regarded with reverence and respect. All of that means that there, it's very important to have a structure 
when a person is engaging with these medicines. And I think most people understand that. How amazing would that be if that type of ideology followed alcohol use? <laughs> Dude. Right? Like you said, uh, like there's always going to be people who um, make bad choices on psychedelics. That's always going to be a thing. And I'm just like, how many people make bad choices on alcohol? Like so many, right? Yeah. And, we, and we have systems in place to to deal with that and to get people recovery and all that stuff. Like we can have those same systems in place to help people with psychedelics too. But the fact is that we're, we in this culture, we're coming at this um, substance use from a totally different level of respect, of veneration, of use, right? We're using it for wellness. We're using it for healing. We're using it for... Uh, you know, all these positive reasons and, and those sorts of ideologies don't come along with most uses of alcohol. You know, some people use it for relaxation, de-stressing, but it certainly is not better for your health. It doesn't necessarily move you uh, in a healing way towards your, <laughs> towards your, your most uh, highest potential of self. You know, it's, it's really interesting and, and how these things are legal and illegal and, all the, you know, all the, all the hands that have, uh, you know, their hands in the, in the pot trying to, to get, uh, you know, money out of, out of the American yeah. public because of these, uh, you know, alcohol and tobacco and all these things that are legal and, wow. and uh, prescription drugs and all these things. It's just, it's interesting. And it's something for us all to consider. And, and, you know, this is an amazing time uh, that we have power to change the way we do things here. Um, and that wasn't always available in the past. Mm -hmm. And right now we're, we're very fortunate to be in this time and space. Um, well, we, we went down a, a long heady road with, with that stuff. Uh, so I'd like to switch gears just a little bit to something a little bit more, um, uplifting. And I told you, I was going to ask you about this on the podcast. So you recently went to a, um, document, um, uh, uh, documentary screening on the mystical experience and um, the mystical experience is one of the most fascinating aspects of human consciousness uh, mm. to me. I mean, that's what my entire PhD dissertation is based around is this mystical experience, um, drug induced, non-drug induced, you know, it's just this, this thing that or this this frequency of consciousness that um, the human bioorganism is able to achieve, whether through meditation or exercise or psychedelics or or breathing or whatever, um, and it transcends culture, it transcends religion, it transcends all you know, it transcends race, it transcends gender. You know, we all have the potential to experience this this strange but amazing thing and uh i was unable to make it to the the screening and i i regret not being able to go but i i asked you i i said i'd, I'd ask for a full verbal report of what you learned and and sort of what stood out to you and what was amazing about this uh documentary so can you please share with me in the audience um just what you learned and and what fascinates you about uh mystical states of consciousness One hundred, one hundred percent. Yeah. So the film is called Psychedelia, and and it was it was very much focused on 
actually on LSD. And it, it shared a lot of the history um, of, of, of LSD and kind of psychedelic culture in the US. Um, it, you know what? I, I might disappoint you because it was actually pretty clinical. <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty clinical. But the one thing that I really appreciated about it, there were a lot of things because, because it, it really did, they did a great job doing a deep dive on the history of psychedelic induced altered states of consciousness in the U S and, and they got, you know, the, the Larry uh, with Ken Kesey. Um, and they were really actually, it was, it was fascinating because so much of the focus was really in that transformative era mm. back in the sixties, which we don't have a lot of insight into these days because it's wrapped up in so much um, propaganda, honestly, you know, um, kind of steering away from how beautiful that time was. And had it been not for the intervention of some powers that be potentially maybe how much more beautiful our lives, at least our country would be right now if, if there wasn't the intervention, but it was, it was a deep, deep, deep dive into the early, early, early histories of, um, really, I think, you know, the, the advent of the non Christian, um, the, the, the non-Christian realization of Right. Because right. Because at the same time, there was the kind of this big sexual revolution. There was um, obviously uh, the civil rights movement. And, uh, you know, there were there was the Grateful Dead and the consciousness movement. We had, you know, more, um, you know, more Eastern traditions getting kind of more awareness and practice here in this country. Um, and so I, I loved it. And by the way, I brought my son. Um, who's going to be seven next month. We're getting him started early. Um, like, you know, cause he's, he's already a little wizard, but anything that we can do to, to safely educate him about, you know, about mystical states of consciousness, like I'm all about it. Um, you know, I ask him gently not to say the word psilocybin in public, but he's very aware of what I do um, for my day job. I'll But, um, you know, I, I think the, it was fun in, in the, the, so I, I want to back up a little bit because what, what I really appreciated about the film was that it really laid a solid foundation for the, 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 the history of, I want to say like a transpersonal movement emerging in our culture, like a human, like a humanistic transpersonal movement emerging. And, and, and back then it seemed to be the emergence of that culture. Um, again, before it was basically, you know, stomped on with a jackboot, right. And shut down for political reasons. So what I, I, I love seeing these films, uh, and awareness because it's it's simply i mean it's it's a way to educate the public um it's a way to get people inspired and curious about 
you know, about, about these states of consciousness. And I, I like a lot what you said earlier, Shane, just about, you know, it, it was revolving around the idea that we, we don't need to induce these altered states of consciousness with any chemicals or compounds necessarily, you know, where we are the, what did Terrence McKenna say? Maybe it was somebody else, but like, you know, we're the pharmacy, <laughs> our bodies, right? And I've been, I've been getting back into my breathwork practice more recently um, with Wim Hof, Wim Hof method. I was surprised. I, I did a breath hold for two and a half minutes the other day. I'm just going to. Um, the, the experience of, you know, of, of creating a DMT like experience using your breath is very real. Um, something else, something also you said earlier about, and I, I think you may have been alluding to that these, these mystical states, they're our birthright. Mm. They're an integral part of being human. Right. And, and what I, so what I'm learning now, so I, I think I mentioned early on that I had a couple of deep journeys in, in May this year. Um, I sat with grandmother ayahuasca and it was the most challenging experience that I had on with, with her, with that plant medicine. Um, in my four years of working with that medicine. And then I also sat with, with a very, dose of, of psilocybin with a guide with a sitter somebody who was there to hold my hand because i needed that person to hold my hand for sure in some of the moments um but what i got was like I, I hung up the phone i was like i don't need i don't need these right now anymore like i got the message the message was very clear the message was like dude dude bro getting bodied you know if you want to be a better conduit for this work then let's start looking at other ways to access the numinous other ways to access these mystical states and to make them more a part of your daily experience. And they don't have to be these blissed out six hour long sessions, right? Like you can, you can have more structure around your day and your daily practice, uh, breath work, right? I'm sure for you, 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 I'm sure you regularly, um, you know, plunge into a flow state, Your, your jiu-jitsu practice, right? Like, how are we, uh, to me, again, this, this, this goes back to like, how are we, um, how are we creating the environment in our life that, that inspires these, these states of consciousness? Um, you know, how, how are we organizing our day and, and remembering to breathe so that we can, you know, both experience the more of these states of consciousness, but then actually take them into our daily life and start to integrate them and start to kind of walk the talk with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, what excites me about the psychedelic movement is that at the end of the day, I think it has nothing to do with psychedelics. I think it's about unleashing the potential of the human spirit. Mm -hmm. So in order to co-create a world that works better.
and it's more holistic. Like I think it, I think that's what it's about. It's not really about it's not really about mushrooms. Yeah, it's about liberating humanity. <laughs> and I think that's part of the message that the mushrooms give us sometimes in those spaces. Um, you know, it is kind of unfortunate that uh, the documentary was focused on clinical um, mystical states. Um, you know. Mystical states of consciousness can happen in clinical settings, but from what I've read and what I've experienced, um, most instances of mystical consciousness do not happen in a clinical setting. And so uh, perhaps even the clinical setting is not the most appropriate place to even study them, even though, you know, that's sort of what we do here in the West is take it to that setting. Um, Another thing uh, well, and I'm, I'm hoping that you can, um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, sharing a little bit about your, your recent experiences and if, if you reached that mystical consciousness or not, but, um, one of the major messages that I've, uh, received from, uh, you know, mystical states in the last year has been, um, you know, in the past leading up to, you know, this last, uh, last couple of years, I was seeking after mystical experiences as if they were um, something to be achieved. Um, it's, it's hard to describe as if like, I need to, it's sort of like climbing a mountaintop to get to the summit, right? Like you have to go on a journey and you have to plan it and you have to go up and, and you get to experience this summit, but then you have to come back down and, and you're always wanting after more and more of those summits, right? More and more of those peak experiences. It's even called in, in a lot of circles. Um, but one of the messages I got uh, a few times from um, mystical experiences in the past year is that uh, every moment of um, our existence, every moment of our waking and dreaming consciousness is a mystical experience if we choose to engage with it in that way, right? Um, I think, you know, it goes back to what we were first saying in the very beginning, like our, our self-talk, right? Like, am I telling myself every day that this is just, oh, this is just a normal, common, everyday experience? Or am I telling myself in every moment, like, holy shit, like this is a mystical experience right now, having this podcast through technology, which is, you know, um, you know, f- faltering at times but uh it's still you know this is mystical this is this is amazing this is uh you know and it, it it's it's about how we choose to talk to ourselves about reality that influences how we engage with reality which influences how we perceive and experience it so uh one of the experiences i had told me you know these these peak mystical experiences is not actually what you're going after it's not actually what you're searching for what you're searching for is the mystical in everyday experience. And um, that has been a profound insight for me that again, like I try and integrate it every day and it takes practice because my, my, my pre-programmed automatic subconscious patterns tells me that no, this everyday reality is just common and it's uh, it's not mystical. So I have to go in and reprogram it every moment that I can remember and just tell myself like, no, every moment is magical every moment is mystical every moment has mystery and i need to be curious and fully engaged in every moment um so that was that was a big insight for me and i'm wondering if 
if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing some of your, uh, you know, some of the actual experience that you had in, you know, the, the IR or the psilocybin sessions and you know, what that, what that led you to. Um, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause I'm still learning how to, how to talk about it in a way that, that can reach people. Right. Cause so at least from my own experience, so many of these mystical experiences are ineffable. Mm-hmm. They're hard to describe. And then when you try to put language to them, it doesn't quite do the experience justice. Now, you know, maybe we can like jack me into the matrix machine and upload some Terrence McKenna speak into me and I could do that better. Um, but of language, right? And how you know language can induce a mystical state of consciousness, right? When you're listening to somebody and becoming entranced by their words and feeling the inspiration rise in your body by what someone is saying, that's so powerful. Um, and and like, right? It's it's the same thing for how we speak to ourselves. Are we speaking to ourselves in a way that's inspirational in a way that's reaffirming the miracle of our existence or are we speaking to ourselves in a way that's like oh just humdrum whatever living my life and mechanically going through my day-to-day activities and so okay so i'll talk about a little bit about my my experience with psilocybin so and i'm not going to give too many of the details however i was in denver and I um, seven grams of freeze-dried penis envy mushrooms. And when you freeze-dry the mushrooms, from what I understand, it breaks down the cell walls and actually makes the psilocin um, more bioavailable. Um, and the onset is faster as well. So it was an incredible experience and it was very well planned very well structured um it was with a, a good friend that i trust and um he was my guide and it was in his space now when <laughs> but here's the curveball and the universe loves to, like i love when the universe throws curveballs even when it hurts mm. <laughs> um, his neighbors were having a rager next door um and i'm talking like loud electronic and how I was going to a festival with this experience. Um, so that's why I say like environment, like environment, I think your environment has the most impact on your, on, on your experience with these, with these medicines. So what, what I experienced in a nutshell, and, and I realized how, miraculous it is that we're actually alive on this planet right now is that I'm sitting, you know, in, in the lying down in the bed with my O's with, with my eyes closed inside this experience about two hours in. So I'm at the peak, the peak of the experience. Um, you know, I, I pulled out my earplugs cause it didn't matter. I could still hear every word being spoken next door plus all the music and I'm, and while being inside this, you know, very safe, very comfortable 
as well. But the container had a little bit more color because of what was happening next door. And, you know, it's, it's the one thing I noticed was how fascinating it was, is like how much more our senses um, are kind of like the volume gets turned up mm-hmm. um, because I could, I, I, I could hear everything happening next door, even like the quietest conversations, um, not someone whispering, but somebody talking kind of normally, like probably like I'm talking now, like, I feel like I could hear that. Plus there's all the laughter and the music and, you know, the yelling. But what it was for me is that on my right hand side and on our right hand side, if we look at like traditional yogic traditions, our right hand side tends to be the, the masculine side. Right. And on that right hand side is where my friend was sitting and he's very noble and has, and, and what I felt like had like just patiently present for me. Um, but I also felt like that from that side of the room where he was sitting, there was this immeasurably abundant, unmanifest, creative information coming in, being beamed into my awareness. And I could feel it. It's like, wow, like there's so much that's possible. There's so much creative potential that we all have as human beings to, to actually be creators, like creators with a capital C, you know, like to, to co-create as divine individuals, our existence on this planet. So there's this beautiful information coming in. And then on my left hand side, and and the left hand is, you know, can the divine mother or the feminine and like the container, right? Like very earthy, right? So on my left hand side is where the window was, where next door was happening. And the music coming in and the 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 grungy, sweaty dirty, playful, bouncy, laughter, yelling happening next door. And so I had this visceral experience of balancing those two energies mm. in, in this vehicle here. Um, <laughs> which and, and I got pulled in this direction and I got pulled in this direction. Um, You know, there were certainly tricks of the mind happening where I thought folks over there were talking about the experience. Like I thought I heard someone talk about set and setting over there. Um, And, and it was beautiful because it was, and I'm I'm still working with this, but it was beautiful because it, it let me know that the very fact that we're alive right now and that you and I are having this conversation and that we're breathing and we have this unique ability to um, make independent decisions and analyze the world and look at things differently. Like we can actually think that we're individuals, that we have a beating heart, that we have a soul and a spirit that's, that's, you know, independent, but not separate from everything. I was like, you know, I finally understood how fragile this is mm. and, and how 
you know, how everything is interconnected and that every single thought that I have and every single action that I take has an impact mm -hmm. on, on the entire reality mm -hmm. in some big or small way. And, and by the way, that's, you know, that's everyone. That's everyone. Um, and, and like the, the fact that we can hold these dueling energies together in order to manifest an experience of being alive and being human. I don't know what else to describe it except for miraculous. Mm -hmm. Mystical. Um, it's mystical, dude. And like, that's thing. Yeah. Like that's what I want to see more of. Mm -hmm. um, can I read something? Cause it, it reminded me of, of, um, I'd, I'd like to share something if that, Um, there's a book out that I recommend you if you haven't read it yet in your audience to check it out. It's a, it's a book called, um, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. And it's by a gentleman named Charles Eisenstein. He wrote sacred economics and a couple of other books. I've been sharing this with a lot of people cause it's, it, it relates to so many things. So he has, um, basically like, like a list of nine principles, for, for interbeing, for our interconnectedness as human beings together on this planet. Um, and this, this list is a little, it's a little bit adapted, but it's, it's almost verbatim. Um, okay, so number one is, uh, my being partakes of your being and all beings. Uh, number two, what we do to another, we do to ourselves. Number three, each of us, Number four, the purpose of life is to express our gifts. Number five, uh, every act is significant and has an effect on the cosmos. Number six, we are fundamentally unseparate from each other, from all beings, and from the universe. Number seven, every person we encounter and every experience we have mirrors something in ourselves. Number eight, Humanity is meant to join fully the tribe of all life on earth, offering our uniquely human gifts toward the well-being and development of the whole. And number nine, the last one, purpose, consciousness, and intelligence are innate properties of matter and the universe. Um, and I just I think a, a little bit on number three. Could you repeat number three? Oh, hold on. It just cut out again. I, yeah, do number three. My back. Ready to go. Do number three. <laughs> number three. Each of us has a unique and necessary gift to give the world. Nice. That's an important one. Yeah. Which other ones did I miss? Because we've been one. cutting in and out this whole time. Yeah, I know. Um, it was just that one that, that you missed. And who knows? Like sometimes uh, if we have a weird internet connection, the Zoom recording actually picks up the the full conversation and it's just our uh experience of it that is cut in and out so you know who knows i'll have to go back and listen to it again when i post it to see if that actually happened or not but um yeah thank you for sharing that those those nine principles are amazing yeah yeah you know it's like how how are we like this is the fun we're supposed to have right like like being human with everything that that it has like i'm learning how to have a little bit more fun 
right? And like every, every single interaction we have is an opportunity to learn something new mm-hmm. potentially. And, and like, that can be fun. And, and, and I think like, really like that's like, cause I can be very serious and very heady if I need to be, you know, very cerebral. And I, I'm, I'm like, that's why I was talking about dancing earlier. It's like, let's, how, how much, how much happier would I feel? How much more fulfilled would I feel for myself if I had a little bit more fun every day, but it takes like, you know, um, and, and I do have fun. Like I, there's stuff that I do this, <laughs> there's, I have, I have fun, but like this movement, the psychedelic movement. Um, and, and especially when we start talking about like the birthright of mystical states, you know, like it's like, we're stepping into the great unknown. I, I'm just, I'm, I've been saying more and more to people these days. It's like, it is, how cool is it that we get to be alive at this moment in history with all of these things happening all at once? You know, and, and, and I bet people would say the same thing a hundred years ago, but like, you know, we have the, you know, the, the internet of things, the proliferation of artificial intelligence technology. We, you know, we have lockdowns and we have viruses, you know, we have the psychedelics gaining more attention and mainstream awareness. We have, you know, like, I think we're in the middle of a massive cultural transformation right now. Um, and, you know, we're moving towards a more global system, obviously, but what does that look like? Is that, does that mean like top-down globalization where we have like, you know, uh, technology that monitor our every move and, you know, like kind of like some of the parts of the world, or are we creating something where we're realizing our, our innate potential as all being connected with each other in, in this experience of interbeingness where we can, you know, focus on how are we propping people up locally? You know, how are we creating these decentralized mechanisms that models the mycelium? Mm-hmm. Right. And cause that's, that's what, you know, mycelium is decentralized. So, and that's a rabbit hole for another time. There's probably a lot in there, but I'm, I'm just excited to be alive because and I have to like really work on reminding myself of that every day because, you know, there are a lot of things in my experience that can cause stress, but it's like, okay, which comes back to like, you know, reactions or responses. How am I responding to things? And, you know, striving to be the eternal student and, and, you know, just, just be open to learning and sharing my gifts with people like yourself and your audience in the world. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. And I, you know, I want to be respectful of your time and, you know, say thank you so much for coming and sharing not only your personal experiences, but sharing more about all the work you do. And, you know, I think a lot of what we talked about today, it's going to hit home with a lot of listeners out there just because, we talked about a lot of, you know, heady things, complicated things, um, political things, but throughout, you know, there's a stream throughout all that we talked about that is just about innate humanity and just what it means yeah. to be human and what it means to 
realize our humanity and more importantly, what it means to fully engage with being a human being. So I want to thank you, Kevin, for coming and reminding me of all those things that I need reminders for. And, um, you know, for being a part of the hundredth episode, it's been awesome. Um, and for all you listeners out there, I just want to remind you all, uh, you know, you are human and you are experiencing something very rare and precious and fragile, um, but phenomenal in its potential. So go and explore that and go and uh, see what you can achieve and see how you can contribute to greater humanity uh, because we are all one large organism. So thanks again, Kevin. I appreciate you and I appreciate you being on the show. It was an honor um, and a pleasure, Brother Shane. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, see you soon. All right. Happy 100. What an amazing episode that was with Kevin. I hope you all enjoyed it. Again, you know, you know, I apologize for the audio and the video quality of this episode. Totally out of my control, but uh, I do what I can to still bring you um, as much as I can, as, as well as I can with what I have. So, um, again... You know, if you want to see better, higher quality stuff, you know, that stuff costs money. So uh, we're going to be hopefully setting up a Patreon account here soon. So keep your eye out for that. Uh, for now, um, you know, we do take uh, donations. There should be like a, um, a link at the bottom of whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast. There should be a little link there to donate to the show. All proceeds go right back into the show. I don't take an income from this. I do this for fun. Uh, but when we do get donations, uh, you know, we're able to um, talk to, you know, more high profile guests. We're able to get better equipment, better internet, um, things like that, so that we don't have to run into issues like we did in this episode. So again, um, the best way you can you can possibly support us is, I mean, yes, five bucks here would be great, ten bucks there would be great, but just keep listening, folks. Uh, you know, as our listenership continues to grow, I know you all are doing your part out there by uh, letting other people know what this show's about, and uh, you know, if you're having trouble answering some of these questions on your own, or you have friends that are struggling with some of these types of questions, um, you know, refer them to the show. Uh, that's all we're trying to do here is, is try to help with um, experience and stories and uh, bring it all together into a, a larger, deeper understanding. So thanks again for coming to the show. Please like and share. Go to our YouTube page. Check out the video of this show. Um, and, uh, yeah, check out all the links in the description, guys. There's there's lots of um, there's links for Vote Nature. There's links to our YouTube page. There's links to be able to connect directly with Kevin from today's um, podcast. So go check all that out. Uh, we try and get you as, as good a content as possible. So until next time, uh, we'll be seeing you. Take care of yourselves. Mm-hmm.